Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Let's go to our Monday expert segment. Today we're talking about the man, the myth, the bard, William Shakespeare, regarded as the finest playwright in history. Some have gone as far as to call him the greatest writer in the English language. Hamlet, Othello, Romeo and Juliet, the Scottish play. There is so much to cover. <laughs> so we needed a born and bred Shakespeare expert to help us out. Today with me is David Lawrence, Shakespeare scholar and artistic director of the Pop-Up Globe. Their upcoming season at Auckland's Sky City Theatre includes Twelfth Night and Romeo and Juliet. Uh, that's going to run until 25th of February. David, hello. Hi. Nice to see you. And you, and thank you for calling it the Scottish play. (laughs) (laughs) Which one of Shakespeare's plays did you first fall in love with? Oh, um... That's that's a good question. I mean, I, I encountered a lot. I encountered lots of them as a kid, but I think the play that unlocked Shakespeare for me. I've said this many times before to anybody who's ever heard me mm. talk about Shakespeare. But I think for me, it was reading Hamlet as a fifteen-year-old, having just lost my dad, and realizing that, wow, okay, somebody. Somebody 400 years ago can articulate and express exactly what I'm going through and feeling at this moment in a way that speaks to me on a level that nobody in my current life can. Uh, None of the the human beings around me were able to support me in the same way as a a dead writer from 400 years ago. And I think that taught me, oh, these plays are about real people and real human beings and real emotions rather than... Tights and fairies and kings and queens. Yeah, that is fascinating. Thank you. And um, can you be more specific? What is it um, in Hamlet that that you recall? Um, and and what was um, what were the lines or what was the <laughs> moment that kind of resonated for you? Oh, I think it was reading that second scene where Hamlet is called out on his teenage sulking by, <laughs> by his um by his mother and his new stepfather uh for i yeah i think for me it was that moment where you know his mother says what i'm paraphrasing here but his mother says look you know what why are you being so sulky about this why do you seem to be affecting um affecting all of this grief and hamlet says uh seems madam nay it is i know not seems is not alone my inky cloak, good mother, nor customary suits of solemn black, nor windy suspiration of forced breath, no, nor the fruitful river in the eye, nor the dejected havia of the visage, together with all forms, moods, shapes of grief that can denote me truly. These indeed seem, for they are actions that a man might play, but I have that within which passes show, these but the trappings and the suits of woe, where he's saying to my mother, I... I'm not just I'm not just putting on the outward appearance of mm. uh, of grief. What I feel is on the inside, 
uh, and uh, you know, and that really resonated with me as as well as the the beautiful eulogizing and elegizing he does of his dead father. Do you still enjoy Hamlet the character? Yes, uh, <laughs> he says with a note of caution in mm. his tired voice. Uh, there's a um, yeah, there's a line I love in Much Ado About Nothing where Benedict says a man loves the meat in his youth that he cannot endure in his in his age. And one of the the lovely things too about Shakespeare is that he changes as you get older. The plays that I loved as a teenager, the plays that the plays that spoke to me when I was a university student, aren't necessarily the plays that resonate with me now. Uh, and yeah, oh, look, I had the experience this weekend of previewing Romeo and Juliet yesterday and thinking that was a play that meant a huge amount to me as a 15, 16 year old. And maybe I'm just too old for it now to to feel the same. I'm, I'm moved by different things in Romeo and Juliet than I, uh, than I was as a teenager. Can I say mm. Romeo is quite insufferable. <laughs> uh, He's a hard one to act. It's hard to get the acting of Romeo right, right? Well, s- similar. He starts so big. Yeah. With we're talking about Rosalind before he even gets to Juliet. Yes, and uh, I my sympathy was always much more with Juliet as a as a proactive and practical character. There's there's often a thing. Look, you you see the same with Hamlet and Ophelia, even with uh, even in the Scottish play with uh, the Scottish guy and his wife, mm. where uh, men in some of men in some of these tragedies can be contemplative and indecisive uh, while uh, the women are very practical. Romeo complains a lot about unrequited love and hangs out under Juliet's balcony. Juliet says straight away, right, what time tomorrow are we getting married? Uh, (laughs) Romeo cries on the floor of the friar's cell about his exile, whereas Juliet says, right, so I'm, uh, I'm going to drink a sleeping potion and pretend to be dead so that you can smuggle me off to a foreign city, right? Romeo delicately drinks poison, taking 25, 30 lines to die. Uh, Juliet, in the space of eight or ten lines of verse, says, right, I'm going to stab myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she, she is a little more active and practical. Uh, Natasha and Alistair, the actors playing Romeo and Juliet in this current production, I hope you don't think that's me making judgments on your performance. <laughs> that's me talking about the characters. Yes. Uh, yeah, mm. David Lawrence, by the way, uh, talking about Shakespeare, and if he sounds like he knows what he's talking about, he does. He also wrote a book called Shakespeare's Tropes. You see, as you look through the plays, him doing the same thing or or trying the same thing again, maybe even improving at the same idea. Well, yes, he is. He's he's an artist, but he's also a practical craftsman who is who has got things that he likes that he's trying to do better each time he comes back to them. You can see progression in his career. Absolutely, absolutely, from being a. you know, from being a rookie emulating the other people in his field to outdoing them to then transforming uh, transforming playwriting as a craft and, and theatre as an industry. You know, it was a super exciting time. I think the 1590s, the 16 noughts, uh, the 16 teens for professional theatre in, in England, uh, you know, particularly in London, where he was, where he was living and working. Uh, so yeah, you know he he starts out trying to write, uh, try, trying to emulate popular hits of the day, trying to write uh, plays that are exciting and engaging and get and get bums on seats, and then at the turn of the sixteenth, seventeenth century, and I you know and I think this has a lot to do with the death of his son and the death of his own father. 
Uh, he stops writing what audiences want to see and starts writing things that he's interested in. Huh. Are the plays of his that are most famous, are they the ones that deserve to be the most famous? And if not, <laughs> are there masterpieces out there that deserve more uh, attention and, and love than they get? Well, I mean, I, uh, a lovely thing is that uh, that, you know, there's me saying that the plays change depending on where you are at in your life. Yeah. The plays I loved when I was young are not mm. the plays that I love so much now. And the plays I didn't understand when I was young are the plays that maybe speak to me. Uh, uh, now I've got more years on my back. Mm. Um, I think also... As you, be- as you become the King Lear of the New Zealand <laughs> theatre industry. I think <laughs> also as the world changes, different different plays uh, come into focus. Uh, measure for Measure, uh, a play I've always loved, has seemed more timely uh, post-Me Too, post-Time's Up. Huh. Uh, I think Timon of Athens, which is... Well, look, Time Out of Athens had one production in New Zealand in 1855 and another in 2015, and otherwise uh, that's its entire performance history in New Zealand. And yet, uh, with... In times of economic crisis and uh, as the gulf between rich and poor becomes huger by the day and cities all over the world now are full of um, are full of more visibly homeless people than maybe they were a decade ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. I feel like Time Out of Athens is a play that mm. needs its moment back in the back in the back in the sun. Uh, it's but. I think it's just been it's been eclipsed by King Lear uh, as a more accessible play with a more perhaps accessible central character. Mm. So you know the yeah the the plays go in and out of fashion according to the times and uh, and that's one of the lovely things about you know reading them and studying them and and directing them. Uh, the time will probably always be right for Romeo and Juliet, uh, but there are yeah there there are other plays. Well, I. I would say there's something in every Shakespeare play that is that is useful and worthwhile and uh, and valuable to us as human beings. Uh, if you've got a question for David on Shakespeare, text it through to us on two one o one. I feel like I haven't seen Othello put on for a while. Well, I wonder if is it a bit tricky. I I wonder if that look through the twi- through the second half of the twentieth century, say, the Taming of the Shrew and the Merchant of Venice were impossible plays to put on. And I, uh, and I remember once on Radio New Zealand uh, telling Kim Hill I wouldn't touch either of those plays with a barge pole and uh, yet directing the both of them for Pop-Up Globe, those were amongst the most fulfilling experiences that I've ever had. And the perception, the perception from the 1960s onwards was that The Taming of the Shrew was enforcing patriarchal norms when I think it's questioning them. Mm. The perception of The Merchant of Venice, particularly post-World War II, is that it is propagating anti-Semitism mm. rather than questioning, anti well, not just anti-Semitism, but intolerance of all yeah. forms. Uh, Othello, uh, Othello is my favourite play, because I think on some levels jealousy is a more fundamental human emotion than than love. Uh, 
uh, not all of us have experienced true love. Uh, not all of us have yet experienced profound grief, but we've probably all experienced jealousy on some level, mm. <laughs> whether it's through being yeah, cuckolded. Professional jealousy. <laughs> whether, yeah, whether, whether it's as extreme as being cuckolded or as, uh, you know, or as minor as me being envious of you having a cup of coffee on the other side of the desk <laughs> and, and me not having one. Yeah, that's my um, 2 p.m. cup of tea, actually. Sorry, <laughs> someone should have offered, no, offered it to you. It's been no, a busy no, day that's, here. That's quite all right. But I, yeah, but I think, um, I think, I think this current age. Well, look, there's there's also a you know there is also a thing where we've we've been told because because the primary Shakespeare industries for the last three centuries have been. uh, by which I mean universities and theatres have predominantly been the province of white educated men Uh, we tend to uh, you know I was brought up uh, being told oh race doesn't really matter in Shakespeare and and race is not important in Othello what's important Othello is about jealousy Othello is not about race which is uh, you know an easy an easy position to adopt when you are not on when you are not on the uh, the side of colour being reflected or interrogated yeah. in the play, when you are arguably benefiting from the structures, that that's about. yeah, that's that's abs- that's absolutely it. Uh, there's been amazing scholarship in the last few years uh, about the amount of exploration of race that is actually present in the plays. Uh, More than you might expect for someone writing in the 1590s as a white man himself. Absolutely. And uh, and the other thing I've really – my favourite books in recent years have – look, I think one of the great things about Shakespeare is that he transcends culture, ethnicity, religion, gender – uh, that we can see ourselves. Uh, at, obviously, this is me wanting to see myself mm. reflected back in the plays. Yeah. But uh, I've been really struck in recent years by the number of uh, books about different cultural explorations of the plays in which people claim him as as their own. There's a fascinating book about a production of Love's Labour's Lost in Kabul in 2005 that was the first time in 30 years in Afghanistan that men and women had been on stage together where one of the actors says to the writer of the book, uh, you know, there are legends of Afghani people in the 16th and 17th century traveling to the West and passing themselves off as Westerners. And I'm convinced that Shakespeare was one of them after Mm. my experience working on, (laughs) on this play. Wow. Or the, the book Romeo and Juliet in Palestine in which uh, an American academic who spends a summer on the West Bank is told by his students, Shakespeare is essentially Palestinian. Uh, that uh, that you know we we can that there, yeah there's a there, there is a level on which his strategic capacity, his way of representing all viewpoints without necessarily telling him what to, without necessarily telling us what his view on any yeah. subject is, means that we can read our own values into the plays, which is a, a wonderful a wonderful useful thing that they have about them message from somebody on text who says, despite the fact that my father was a Shakespearean actor, I still don't get it. (laughs) And I'm 60. I'm quite happy to use his language in everyday use, as we all do. And I try and see a play every few years, but I still just don't get it. That's tough, isn't it? It is. I think... I think uh, trying to encounter the plays on your own terms, uh, trying to... I mean, the language can be an obstacle. 
even though it's not as archaic as we might think it is. Mm. Uh, often when you break it down... The, the number of the number of strange words uh, the number of words that aren't uh, still in currency is is less than less than we think it would be mm. a, a good actor can bring meaning to it too absolutely I mean the yet yeah, the essence of Shakespearean acting is understanding exactly what you mean and most audience members aren't going to sit there with an academic edition and uh, <laughs> um, the pity. you know and, uh, and and an early modern dictionary. So <laughs> yeah. it's um, it's unrealistic to expect that an audience member is going to sit there and understand every single word. But it is realistic to expect that the actors should know mm. what they are saying and to be able to convey some meaning. To be able to convey some meaning to the audience. Hey, how about those uh, audience members who go along and uh, laugh at all the obscure jokes and a very loud laugh so everyone knows <laughs> that they got the joke? That's probably just me. <laughs> <laughs> Was Shakespeare famous at the time? Yes. Yeah. More famous than his contemporaries? Hard to know. I think so, yes. I, I think of I think of the Lord Chamberlain's men as uh, Shakespeare's Shakespeare's theatre company as being the Beatles of mm. their age, uh, that they weren't the only amazing theatre company doing amazing work with amazing actors, but uh, they were the beacon around or around which all of those other companies and all of those uh. Uh, other practitioners, you know, that, that they were the beacon that everybody else was a satellite of. And when it comes to genre, would people have said, hey, there's a new Shakespeare play on, it's a tragedy, we should go see it, or it's a comedy, this will be a laugh, let's go enjoy it? I, I think they used those cursory titles, but it was really the, the when you look at the genre divisions in the first folio, which was the first collected works of Shakespeare's plays in 1623, you've got plays that are called histories when they were published as tragedies, uh, uh, when, they were, when they were published in individual book form, uh, yeah, the categorizations of the first folio where they decide that they're comedies, histories or tragedies, those are maybe obstacles to us because uh, then we can't, we're sometimes not so willing to accept that the tragedies have a lot in them that is very funny. Uh, what um, One of the things I loved in last night's preview of Romeo and Juliet, for example, was that we were still getting great laughs uh, long after the play has um, yeah. changed trajectory in Act 3, that um, even in Juliet's most profound moments of grief, the nurse is able to say things uh, that get huge laughs. That nurse character is a great one, isn't it? Yes. Particularly in the hands of, a, of the right actor. Uh, yes, and sh uh, she was heartbreaking last night, not, not to me in her grief, but in uh, the... The moment where, having clandestinely supported Juliet the whole way through the play, she turns on Juliet mm. when Juliet's father says, either you marry Paris or I disown you. And when Juliet looks to the nurse for comfort and she says, actually, I think you should do what your father wants, mm. even though I've spent the whole play telling you the opposite. <laughs> Um, but that's probably the play I know the best, that one. I've played two very unmemorable characters in that play. I played, oh, I... I played Friar, Friar Lawrence when I was at school, and I played Paris, who's just this bland kind of like placeholder, right? Well, uh, <laughs> I yeah, I don't think there are any unmemorable characters in this play. <laughs> no, I, I mean, the unmemorable actors. I, I think one of the, the great learnings for me too as a teenager performing in the plays for the first time is that – that sense of ensemble, that sense of company that you get of realising that every character from 
uh, from the highest born king or queen to the lowliest messenger or servant or page <laughs> can can make a meaningful contribution to the play. Thinking of Peter the Capulet Servingman standing at the back of a scene last night, bawling, uh, and uh, yes, and <laughs> um, Paris doesn't know that he's not the main character in the play. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love that. Uh, David Lawrence talking Shakespeare. What does your guest think about Shakespeare or the theory of Shakespeare being someone else, for example, the Duke of something? Uh, I think that that is uh, well. Well, look. Let me let me give you a tried and true response to that. Um, I've I've mentioned the Beatles because I I think that the 1960s music industry is a really good analogy for how we might think about questions of Shakespearean authorship. Um, imagine if in 400 years' time we had no uh, we had no audio uh, visual representation Mm. of the Beatles, if we had no surviving documentation about uh, the work that... uh, Yeah, imagine if in 400 years' time, uh, people listening to the music of the Beatles said, four four working-class guys from Liverpool with no formal music education couldn't have written the greatest popular music of the 20th century. It must have been... Uh, it must have been Gershwin and Jimi Hendrix and Mozart uh, writing under uh, writing under pseudonyms. Um, I, yeah, I I think I've yet to see a theory about the true authorship of Shakespeare's plays that aligns better with the circumstances uh, of um, the working class son of a glove maker from Stratford upon Avon as a uh, yes. It, Every great candidate has got holes in their biography that, uh, yeah, that circumstantially don't match up. If Edward de Vere wrote the works of William Shakespeare, then he could have only written about 60% of them because, uh, yes, because he died before, uh, before the circumstantial evidence tells us that at least a third of the canon was written. Uh, and the, yes, as I said, yeah, I... I've yeah I've yet to see evidence that uh, that is, yeah I've yet to see evidence of a candidate that's better than the guy we think wrote the plays. Neil and Fangrace wants to uh, point out how many Star Trek episodes were inspired by Shakespeare plays. Don't know if you made that connection. Before. Uh, uh, Neil from Fangrace could only be Neil Lambus. Uh, and <laughs> hi Neil, I haven't seen you in about twenty years. Not since Measure for Measure in Fangrace. 2005. Maybe that wasn't. Well, as long as we're doing memories, Angela <laughs> would like to point out that is it Timon of Athens? Timon of, of Athens was put on by the Massey University Dramatic Society in the late 80s, starring one John Bridges, later of Ice TV and various other TV projects. Ah, well, that production hasn't made it to the Theatre Aotearoa database, uh, from which I've made my erroneous assumption that I am happy to happy to walk back on. Robin and Hokitika says, doesn't the nurse just illustrate the powerless helplessness of star-crossed love? Great analysis from Hokitika. Well, yes, but I would also say everything that goes wrong in Romeo and Juliet goes wrong because of human error, because of... Is that friar? People like the nurse and Stupid the friar. Plans. Think, yeah, the, the, the nurse and the friar thinking they know better than uh, than their employers uh, or, uh, well, no, I guess God is technically Friar Lawrence's employer. <laughs> 2101 is our text number, our last chance to get a question to our Shakespeare expert, David Lawrence. What should we make of the fact that there are very few stage directions in Shakespeare's plays? Do you think they've been lost over time or do you think he hoped that people would one day 
make what they will of his scripts? Well, he wasn't writing for publication. He was, uh, I think he was writing expecting he would be in the building, in the rehearsal room to explain uh, explain what mm. he needed if the situation arose. There's also, I don't think he was writing for posterity. Uh, mm. Plays in the early modern era, some some plays had one outing and that was it. A successful play might go into repertory and be performed as many as 12 or 13 times in a year. Shakespeare's company were a repertory company performing a different play every day. Uh, they, yeah, they, uh, they weren't thinking about the long life of these plays. Uh, they were thinking about, uh, well, uh, as, with my, as with our company yesterday afternoon, they were thinking about how do we get through tonight's performance? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Now, what am I going to ask you when I've, I really, if you got, you couldn't give us a little more. I loved your um, rendition of Hamlet earlier. Do you have anything else you could give us to? Oh, well, uh, yes, I guess uh, seeing what is what is buried deep in the lizard brain, wh- what would you like? <laughs> um, well, my, my favourites, King Lear, um, Romeo and Juliet. Well, I mean, yeah, Lear, a, a wonderfully venomous play. Again, a play I, I loved when I was younger and that now I can't I can't think of anything worse than coming out of the theatre on a Saturday night, having seen a, a play in which a man says of his daughter, you know, here, goddess, here, dear goddess, here, suspend thy purpose if thou didst intend to make this creature fruitful. Into her womb convey sterility and dry up in her the organs of increase and from her derogate body never team a babe to honour her or if she must create in her a child of spleen that it may live to be a thwart, disnatured torment to her. Let it stamp wrinkles in her brow of youth uh, with cadent tears, fret channels in her cheeks that she may feel how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child, which is no real way to speak to your daughter. <laughs> is I mean, that about Cordelia or one of the others? Uh, no, that's, that's him speaking to Gonroll. Oh, He's, well, she deserves it, doesn't uh, she? Well, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, well, mind you, I mean, if your dad came to stay and brought a hundred friends uh, <laughs> with him who stayed up drinking all night and trashing your house, uh, yeah, you might not feel sympathetic to his, uh, to his bad temper. We don't know too much about Shakespeare's personal life. A lot of it's been patched together or sometimes assumed. Is there any use as a scholar of Shakespeare's plays in, in finding out or in finding out what was going on in his life? You referred to this earlier, maybe the effect that um, various deaths had on his writing. But For, is there much link between the biography and the work? Well, uh, as I was saying in terms of the authorship, the the circumstances of the circumstances of the working class guy from Stratford on Avon line up with what we know about the London playwright and uh the life circumstances also, you know, the yeah, the circumstantial evidence lines up with the thematic through lines in the in the plays that he starts writing about dead children at exactly the point that he is a father experiencing the loss of his young son. He, his plays from that, you know, from from fifteen ninety six onwards after the death of his son. His plays time and time come back to the idea of the dead coming back to life, whether it's figuratively or literally, you know, whether it's uh, figurative at the end of 
Romeo and Juliet in the way that, uh, well, statues of the dead yeah. children are a way of memorialising them. Putting the the quarrel of the the warring families to bed is a way of bringing the children back to life, or whether it's Hero not actually being dead in the first place in much ado about nothing, but being brought back to life by um, by the penitence and shame of her um, badly behaved fiance. Uh, Twelfth Night, which breaks my heart every every time I see that final scene in which uh, the sister grieving her drowned twin brother watches him brought back to life, uh, just as the brother grieving his drowned twin sister sees her brought back to life in front of him. Uh, at, the, at the end of Measure for Measure, again, the sister sees her dead brother brought back to life. At the end of The Tempest, the king sees his drowned son miraculously brought back to life. Now, they're miracles and tricks because those characters were never dead in the first place. They were only dead so far as those characters assumed and not, uh, and not as the audience mm. is in full possession of. But uh, I, yeah, I can't get past believing that he was using his plays both to both to achieve box office success and fulfill his day-to-day job as uh, as a playwright who needed to provide plays for his theatre company. David, yep, David Lawrence, thank you so much. Auckland Sky City Theatre, Twelfth Night, Romeo and Juliet and others, the upcoming season of the Pop-Up Globe. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.